There's a story, and I'm not sure if it's actually verified, but it's certainly repeated and established in Roman lore, of Cleopatra and Marcus Antonius, or you may know him as Mark Antony. Following the assassination of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony grew in political power and military might. And with Egypt being an enticing ally, he sought the support of Cleopatra. Though some think there were romantic motivations, the two met at 41 B.C., coming together to bond in political and military might. Antony called the meeting ostensibly to interrogate Cleopatra as to her assistance in the assassination of Julius Caesar, but almost everyone could see through this and see his ulterior motives. As the story goes, Cleopatra arrived and began to lavish parties and feasts in honor of Mark Antony. For several nights in a row, they sat before just enormous meals, perhaps like what you had this afternoon. Yet somehow in the midst of it all, a wager was made. Maybe there was too much wine, I don't know, but a wager was made and Mark Antony said, let's see who can give the most elaborate and most expensive feast. Cleopatra accepted the bet and Mark Antony went first and he laid out everything. He spared nothing, spared no expense and had a very expensive and lavish meal. Then Cleopatra prepared a meal and it was rather normal by her standards. As Mark Anthony watched as the food was prepared and laid before him, he scratched his head and he thought, this is strange. We had a nicer meal and a more expensive meal just a few nights ago. Yet, as he began to rebuke Cleopatra and mock her for her inability to win this wager, Cleopatra removed one of her pearl earrings. An earring of inestimable value, she laid it on the table and crushed it with her knife. She then scraped the pieces into her glass of wine swished it around, and drank the glass of wine. Now, in those days, the pearl was the most expensive and priceless jewel known. And for her to do this would easily trump anything Mark Antony would have pitched. She won. Now, to us, sitting here, we think this is the most preposterous act any human could ever do, right? Is there any woman in here who would crush up her engagement ring and put it in a glass of wine and drink it to win a bet? How foolish, right? How wasteful. We almost want to walk up to Cleopatra and just smack her across the face and say, what were you thinking? How could anyone be such a poor steward of what God has given them? Well, this evening we will find someone just as wasteful on the pages of Scripture. Just as preposterous and just as foolish but this person is not rebuked for their decision not reprimanded for their action but instead receives the praise from God himself Jesus Christ open your Bibles with me to John chapter 12 John chapter 12 and we will have to sort of pick up on the context as we move into this we fall right on the heels of one of the most Remarkable miracles Christ performed as He raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And though we move into chapter 12 and some might say, well, this is anticlimactic. Lazarus has been raised and there's nothing miraculous in chapter 12. I want us to see that there is a spectacle nonetheless. This section, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, will discuss Mary's anointing of Christ. Now, all four narratives contain an account of a woman 
anointing Christ, but the account of Luke is not the same as the one here. It describes an immoral woman honoring Christ at the home of a Pharisee, but this is not the setting. In fact, let's pick up the setting for our story this morning in verses 1 and 2. John chapter 12 begins, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Six days before Passover. Now, this was Jesus' third Passover in his ministry and and his last. And many would come at this time of the year to Jerusalem. In fact, most scholars believe that over two million people would ascend to the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus arrives in Bethany, which is really not far, less than two miles away from the city and could be rightfully considered a suburb. You can only imagine with Jerusalem being a small city and having two million people ascend on it, that it would be a nice place to rest outside of town. In fact, this was the town where Lazarus lived. And for, in fact, they were probably having a dinner celebrating what took place in chapter 11. Both the Matthew and Mark's accounts say that this dinner was in the home of Simon the leper. Some even think that this was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' father. But regardless of who Simon was, this dinner was a dinner of the ages. Look at who was there. Simon the leper, once healed by the hand of Christ, and a former corpse in Lazarus. Can you imagine the conversation around the dinner table? Can you imagine Simon, you know, wanting to tell his story? You know how we get, we, he was so excited and he starts telling, I, I was leprous, you know, I, I, my hand had been completely withered away and, and it was amazing and Christ came and he healed me. And Lazarus would just let this story go on and on and finally Lazarus would just pull out the trump card and say, look, I was dead. For four days, Simon would be quiet and Lazarus would kick his feet up and relax. We look in the text and we see that Martha was serving. And this is fitting with her personality. We know that even in previous contexts, Martha was reprimanded for her attitude and being bitter in her service. But here we see no inclination of bitterness, no impropriety, nothing wrong with Martha's serving, but it certainly was her personality, it certainly fit Martha, and she was serving them this wonderful meal. The statement that Lazarus was one of them would have been redundant if it had been at his home. So this is what leads scholars to believe that this was at the home of Simon the leper. Now, in the text it says they recline. Now, you might be thinking of, you know, your high school children or your young children that always ask to go and lie down on the floor and eat their food in front of the TV. Well, this is not exactly what took place, but this is how they often ate their meals. It was around a U-shaped table that was maybe 12 to 18 inches off the ground. And they would lean on one arm. Most of them would lean on their left arm, unless you were a Benjamite and you were left-handed, and that would throw all kinds of problems into the meal. But you would lean on your left arm and you would be able to eat with your right. This is the picture that we have in John 13, where it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned on Christ's breast. How do you do that at a dinner table without being really awkward, unless you're both lying toward the table. Your feet would radiate away from the table. You wouldn't want your feet near the food. We can imagine what kind of mess that would make. So here you have this picture of a U-shaped table with all the men lying, all the disciples lying around this table, eating their meal. Martha serving diligently. This made easy access for the foot washing. You'll see in chapter 13 
and even easy access for what Mary is about to do. Well, the scene is set, and we come then to the meat of the story in verse 3. And it's here where we will see resonating worship. Resonating worship. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Even at first glance, before we dive into this, this seems strange. This seems outlandish. What kind of ointment was it? Well, it was much like the myrrh that we read of that was brought to Christ. It was a general term for perfume. What made it expensive was that it was a type of nard, which was grown in the high hills of India, and it was very difficult to harvest. Ever wondered when you went to a seafood restaurant why king crabs were so expensive? Perhaps you've read about or seen on TV just how difficult it is. In fact, it's the most deadly job in the world to go Alaskan king crab fishing. Same thing with this ointment. It was very difficult to harvest, and so it was very expensive. How expensive? Verse 4 says it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, to us, we say, well, what does that mean? You know, it's, we don't have an immediate calculator from first century times into our day. Well, let me just tell you this. One denarii was a skilled laborer's day's pay. A skilled laborer's day's pay And so here we have 300 days' pay. Knowing that they would take the Sabbath off, here we have a year's salary worth of perfume. Add to it, the synoptic gospels say that she broke the alabaster jar that came in it. And the alabaster jar, no doubt, would have been expensive. She lavished this perfume on Christ. Other accounts indicate she poured it head to toe. Matthew and Mark say that she poured it on His head. And this is likely pointing to the fact they wanted to emphasize Christ's kingliness John says instead he focuses on the self-abasement of Mary and says she poured it on his feet. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine, you know, 15 men lying around the table and all this boisterous masculine conversation, a leper talking about being healed, Lazarus talking about rising from the dead, you know, one story after another story after another story, and in walks Mary, breaks an obvious expensive piece of perfume, and begins to anoint Christ. Can you hear the awkward silence? Can you maybe even hear the gasps of those who realize just how expensive this perfume would be? Perhaps Martha would have stopped her serving, standing there holding the deviled eggs, looking at this act in astonishment. How could this be? To add to this, Verse 3 makes the comment that she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this is not only strange when it comes to hygiene. It's strange in the first century for a woman never let her hair down in public. A woman's hair was considered her glory. Maybe that would give us insight as to why it takes so long for them to prepare it. But a woman's hair was her glory and she never let it down in public. To do so would be a disgrace. Here's Mary in a room full of powerful men, she has complete disregard for what they think. Complete disregard for what they think and only focused on Christ. Humiliation would accompany such an act. And yet she disregards it all, lets her hair down, and anoints Christ. The text says that the fragrance filled 
the room. Now, from a historical perspective and just a literal perspective, this speaks to the quality of the perfume and the quantity of the perfume. To fill the entire house would have had to take a lot of perfume. It would have to take something that was very strong. But I think there's even something that's more profound behind it. What a picture of her worship. Her worship resonated. Not only did the smell of what she did resonate, but her act resonated. In fact, Christ said this in one of the other accounts, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Wow. There are not many commendations like that in Scripture. Not many footnotes to the gospel that will go along with an undying and unending message for all eternity. And here we have a humble woman and her act will resonate throughout the halls of history. Why? Because this worship is pure, sacrificial giving to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8.3 says that our giving should be like this, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave to their own accord. Philippians 4 said, but I have received what you have sent, a fragrant aroma. He even picked up on this illustration, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. J.C. Ryle, centuries ago, noticed something lacking in Christianity, and he penned it like no other. There are only too many professing Christians of a like spirit in the present day. Myriads of baptized people cannot understand zeal of any sort for the honor of Christ. Tell them of any vast outlay of money to push a trade, or to advance a cause of science, and they approve it as right and wise. Tell them to the expense incurred for preaching the gospel at home or abroad, for, God's, for the spreading of God's word, for extending the knowledge of Christ on earth, and they tell you plainly they think it a waste. They never give a farthing to such objects as these, and they count these people fools who do. Wasteful worship. How much do you give in your worship? Are you proud when you look at your checkbook and see what you've done? Are you comforted that you sacrificed sleep and perhaps a round of golf this evening to come to church? Are you pleased with your efforts? Are you humbled to the point of breaking the bank, forsaking all rational thought about what is yours, and instead offering what you have as a fragrant aroma to God. Mary didn't consider a tax break. She didn't check with Judas, who was the treasurer. She didn't say, will this be able to be written off on my income tax? She didn't consider a percentage. She didn't say, is this 10 or 15% of my income? She didn't pour a little bit into a container or a Ziploc bag and say, no, can't give that much. She broke it. And she gave it sacrificially. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Go to 1 Samuel and take a right. Second Samuel chapter 24 and pick up in verse 18. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, 
Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of God, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aronah looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aronah went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Aronah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yoke of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aronah gives to the king. And Aronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aronah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built the altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by the prayer from the land and the plague was held back from Israel. You pick up on this? David was not about to offer anything that would be called worship if it did not mean sacrifice on his part. How many of you have pondered, well, what if I won the lottery? If I won the lottery, a 50 million lottery, I would be so sacrificial, I would probably give to this church 30 million of the 50. Is that sacrifice? Or maybe you think, when I get that promotion, ooh, I'm going to increase my giving. Or maybe you think, when I get a better job, I'll have more time, then I'll give more to God. I'll give more of my calendar to God. Not David. David saw that it is not worship if it is not sacrifice. What does it mean to God if you give Him something out of your abundance? We learned in Mark chapter 12 that there was a woman who had only two mites. And she gave them all she had. And she was praised by Christ for her giving. She wasn't reprimanded. She wasn't told, what are you doing? This is foolish. This is poor stewardship. You don't even have enough for your next meal. Why was Christ honored? Because it was sacrifice. Why would David not accept a gift from another man to offer up to God? Because it was not sacrifice. You say, well, why did we not worship as we should? Why do we not worship as we should? And I think the bottom line is this. Why are we not willing to give what we have now? of our time and our talents and our treasures. Why do we not give now? Why do we always hope that if the Lord gives us a whole lot more, then we'll give back to Him? It's because of one thing and one thing only. We don't think He's worth it. We don't think He's valuable enough. There is no explanation. As I sat down and studied this passage, and I asked, I even asked Adam, I said, you know, here are a few texts. You tell me what you want to preach, but I kind of want to do this one because this has haunted me since I preached it months and months and months ago. If we are not worshiping sacrificially, it's because we do not believe Christ is worth it. You see, we look at this text, and we see Mary's act, and we say, well, there's a model of worship. But that's not why this text was written. John did not sit down at this point, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and come to chapter 12 and say, I'm going to write so that we will lift up Mary and exalt her and she will be the model of worship. Do you know why he wrote chapter 12? So that he would exalt Christ. 
His picture is Mary does this foolish, outlandish, elaborate, wasteful worship, and yet it is perfectly worthy of Christ. He is showing that we have such a low view of Christ, we think this is absurd. We're not the only ones. Let's look at the reaction in verse 4. Now, we saw resonating worship in verse 3, but unfortunately we're going to see that this was seen as revolting worship in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him... Now, stop right there. I need to pull this out. Can you imagine John writing this? And we tend to think that he's writing chronologically in that he sat down and wrote this the night that this took place, but we know that's not true. He's flashing back on this, and he knows Judas' actions. And that's why we see every time in the Gospels that Judas' name was mentioned, that there's this parenthetical thought of his betrayal. It marked him for his life. Anyway, he said, this disciple Judas, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? What about the poor? Do you see any rebuttal from the other disciples? Do you see Peter stand up and say, Judas, you're a fool. Sit down. Do you see John standing up and smacking Judas and saying, be quiet. That's inappropriate. No, in fact, what we find in the other accounts is that all the disciples were indignant at Mary's worship. Every disciple that had walked with Christ did not have a right perspective of who he was. Are you there today? Do you understand Christ and exalt Him so much in your life that you would look at Mary and be proud of her? Or would you join in with the disciples and say, you fool? Judah says, this is a wasteful act. How is this not given to the poor? 300 denarii. Now we say, well, how did she get this expensive perfume? And we don't really know it. Often perfume was inherited. We don't really think of that in these days. You probably don't look in your grandfather's you know, medicine cabinet and hope that the old spice will get passed down to you. Probably not real excited about your grandmother's perfume. But in those days, it was expensive and it was seen as valuable. Or perhaps we even have the understanding that this family was well off to begin with. Whether she inherited it or she went out and bought it specifically for this purpose, we do not know. Regardless, Judas, the money manager of the disciples, looks at this and says, wasteful. This is revolting. A year's pay? How could you do this? What about the poor? And it's at this point we think, ah, Judas is a philanthropist. But before we can get any further, verse 6. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. We often think about Judas as having one bad night, but no. Judas's heart was corrupt from the time he started following Christ all the way to the time he betrayed him. And Judas is no more concerned about the poor than he is about Mary. What about the poor? What Judas is saying is, what about me? He considered himself to be the poor. He said, what about the poor? And then he opened the money box and he opened it and he said, why didn't you put it in here? Because Judas knew that if she put the money of the value of that perfume in the box, he could have taken off a percentage 
and he would have been better off. Judah's selfishness is couched in this pragmatic compassion. This could have been better used. A little side note, social activism often conceals a heart of pride and self-righteousness. Think if I give enough to others, I'll certainly prove myself to be a good person. This is the opposite of Mary. Mary's not concerned about herself. She's not concerned about what other people think. In fact, we already have that proven. Everyone in the room thought she was an idiot. You've looked around at some people that perhaps you've known in the media or you've seen in this world and thought they appear to be evil and wicked people and yet all of a sudden they cut a check to some orphanage in the Sudan. You say, why? Did they have a change of heart? No. They couched it just like Judas. What about the poor? If I give to the poor, then I'll think better of myself and better standing before God. This is not the case. But even if Judas' motives had been pure, he was wrong. There is no greater investment than worshiping Christ. None. Now, you may worship Christ and you're giving to others, but it's worshiping Christ that is our aim. If you want to open your home to the poor and you want to try and help the poor, that is not the end of your giving. The end of all of your actions, including your giving and your sacrifice and your time, is to glorify God. Well, Judas is unmasked in this text for being the selfish, thieving weasel that we know of later in the Gospels. He's in charge of the money box, as the text says, which is interesting. It was a music box. I don't. I guess maybe they. It was a convenient size, and they stole it and started to put money in it. It said that he habitually lifted from it or pilfered from it. This was Judas robbing God. I think the text turns and applies that directly into our hearts too. How many of us rob God? Now, I don't mean swipe cash from the offering plate when it's going by. That is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And I think it's even kind of reprehensible to make change in the offering plate. I would encourage you not to do that either. But not so much of that. But how, much, how many of us skim off the top of what God has given us to give back to Him? We look at our calendar and we say, well, I'm going to take this amount of time and that's my time and then what's left over and then i'll put work in there and family in there and then here's a little bit left to give to god how about our checkbooks how about our abilities do we skim off the top and rob god of what is rightfully his the parallel in this text or the hinge point in this text is astonishing in verse three you have mary who is completely sacrificial in verse 4, you have Judas, who is utterly selfish. And guys, that's the watershed. There's no option C in our worship. You will either be selfish or sacrificial. I was blown away at the discrepancy found as each person valued Christ. Ponder this just for a minute. Mary thinks that a temporary, lavish display something that will wear off at Christ's next bath, was worth a year's salary. Judas thinks that Christ's entire life is worth less than four months' pay. Here is Mary wasting 300 denarii. Judas sells Christ for 30 pieces of silver. 
do we value Christ? Now, it's important that we understand this, that our value in Christ does not make Him valuable. If you fail to worship Christ together as a church rightfully, it does not diminish Him. I have this fantastic quote from C.S. Lewis. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the wall of his cell. Know that Christ's glory is not diminished if you don't worship Him. But your worship is not accurate. If it's not sacrificial, if it's not rightfully exalting Him as He is. So who loses out in this deal? It's not Christ. It's not that Christ is belittled and Christ is no longer glorious. It's you that lose out. Your worship is incomplete and ineffective. Look back at the text. There's really only one concern that Mary has. It's that she doesn't care what Judas thinks or what Peter thinks or even what Martha thinks. There's only one person in the room that she cares about. And he speaks up in verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for you always have the poor with you but you do not always have me now christ concedes at this point that he pretends as if judas motives were pure and he says guess what the the poor will always be with you i will not christ understood that the most valuable thing on earth to ever be valued the most important person on earth was him And he was only here for a short period of time. Now when he says, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, not really sure exactly what he meant there. Most people, most scholars think that he is simply saying, she is pointing toward my death and my burial. Perhaps in the same way that Caiaphas unknowingly said, it is best that one man die for many. He didn't know that he was laying out and proclaiming a sacrificial substitutionary atonement of Christ. That would have been the last thing that he wanted to do. But God speaks even through those who don't understand the reality. Or maybe it was that Mary knew. Maybe she had picked up even more than the disciples had. There's a very good reason to believe that, for she valued Christ more than the disciples. Christ extends this rebuke to Judas. He says, let her alone. And the Gospel of Mark even ties this rebuke as the final straw. Right after that, he says, Judas left to go discuss how much he could betray Christ for. What a night in the heart of a wicked man to sit at the feet of Christ and to see Him worshipped by a woman of inestimable value of perfume. And he left that night and went and discussed selling Christ to be crucified for less than a tenth of what it was. Let's look back at the text. Verse 9 then says, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that He was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. Perhaps they had kept Lazarus sheltered to have this dinner with Christ. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Christ. Verses 1 through 8 is really a closed door kind of respite in the home of Simon the leper. 
It's as if it turns in verse 9 and the doors swing open and the saga continues as Christ is headed to the cross. Now they say they didn't come just for Christ, but they came for Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus stood as a walking rebuke of the leadership. First he proclaimed the greatness of Christ and they couldn't have that. Here's a man that was dead and now he was alive and he's walking around demonstrating that Christ was more powerful than anyone else. And secondly, it was a walking rebuke of their theology. The vast majority of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and they believed there was no life after death. Here you have a man who was demonstrating and illustrating life after death and he was saying that the man who raised him claimed to be the resurrection and the life. But bless his heart, you've got to feel sorry for Lazarus here. He was sick for a long time. He died Then he was yanked out of heaven. You know, you wonder what kind of conversation. Does Lazarus pull Christ aside and say, why did you do that? And then, the very next day, he's on a wanted poster in the post office. Well, we don't know the mind of Christ. But I know Lazarus was better off in heaven and probably longed to get there quickly. But one thing we learn from chapter 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus to Mary's worship of Christ, is that we have a great Savior. It would be very easy to come here and to try and preach worship just like Mary. We look for texts like that, don't we? Texts that preach. Really easy to convict. But the real point of this passage is not that you worship like Mary. It's that you recognize who Mary worshipped. Recognize how valuable Christ is. And then you understand, well, this was not foolish or wasted worship. This was right worship. If you understand who Christ is, your worship will fall in line. Don't try to just mimic Mary's worship and you all leave here tonight and you write everything that's in your checking account and you write it all out on a check and you give it to the church. If you want to do that. I don't know if Adam would be opposed to it. But that is not the point. The point is not to have a model of worship and then you follow after it. The point is to understand that her worship was not wasted because Christ is supreme. And there's not a person in here, just like there was not a disciple in that room, that cannot use tweaking in our understanding of Christ. We will never, until we get to glory, fully understand how magnificent He is. Right, we sang the song, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Can we sing that every moment of our lives with full integrity? No, we can't. Maybe it's better to sing it, Lord, make it so. Put it in my heart that I would rather have you than anything because there's not a person in here that wouldn't confess that this week they valued some things over Christ. What does your worship look like? Is it a fragrant aroma to God or can you not even smell it in the next room? Does your worship reek of pride and self-service? Have you ever been foolish in your giving or preposterous in your worship? If not, it's because you do not have a right view of Christ. My prayer for this church is the same prayer that I have for my church the same prayer that I have for my own life, is that I would gain such a grasp of our Lord and Savior that I would see no 
outlandish or lavish worship as wasted. But I would long for every fiber of my being to be focused on worshiping Christ. I would look at my checkbook and my calendar and say, how can I give it all to Christ? Worship is our goal. Do you understand that? That is our goal as a church. That is our goal as people, is to worship Christ rightly. That is the end of our lives. That is the purpose we were brought here to do. Now, some of us might say, well, what about preaching the gospel to the lost? I think Piper has the best quote on that. Missions exist because what? Worship does not. Missions is only a means to the end, and that is everyone should worship Christ rightfully, and we don't. Everyone should exalt Christ as the King, Lord of Lords, and they don't. Therefore, missions exist. So know in your own life that your goal as an individual and as a church is to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are humbled by the example of Mary. We are rebuked because we understand that she, even in her imperfect understanding of Christ, had a far more exalted view than we. Lord, I pray that You would teach us and enlighten us and show Yourself to us so that we may be awed by our Savior and that we may worship You rightly.